Uh, I hope you're enjoying our time in Joshua. Um, It's a little bit different, isn't it, uh, when we spend our time uh, in the Old Testament to the New Testament. Uh, But in some ways, it's very similar. Um, The Old Testament has been given to us today. Uh, The stories in it have been given to us today to cause us, as Lang said earlier, to to worship, to delight in God as we see more about what he is like. Um, They're not just there to uh, puff up our knowledge, to give us maybe more interesting facts, um, but to point us to Jesus. Paul says in Romans 15, he says, everything was written in the past uh, to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. So when you read these books, they may uh, look a little bit like sort of stories of bloody political history, um, but they've been given to us. They've been inspired for us to progressively reveal more and more of the gospel of Jesus. As we read through the Bible from start to finish, it reveals more of what God is like, how he deals with his people, until it becomes clear that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is King, that he died, he rose again, and he will return to judge. Uh, The Bible sometimes uh, describes a little bit like a jigsaw. Uh, I don't really like jigsaws, my wife does. Um, But it seems that the tactics are that you start first with the edges of a jigsaw. You start around the edge of a jigsaw and you move slowly towards the centre. The Bible's lit like that. You start at the edges, you move slow towards the arrival of Christ in the centre. <coughs> or a pastor, Richard Coken, describes it more like, imagine each book of the Bible is a series of lights. Uh, each light which goes on is a slightly different colour, each book. And as each light comes on, starts with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, um, those lights change slightly as each more comes on, as more is revealed. Now, as those of us now, as we sit here with the whole of the Bible... We see each book in its true colour. Only in the light of all the books can we understand what takes place in all of them. We're very privileged that we sit with the whole of God's word here and when we can understand what goes on here in something like Joshua. And as we read this account today, as we read uh, this passage here in Joshua, we know the arrival of Jesus is what is at the end. Joshua literally is the same name as Jesus. God saves And in Joshua, we've been seeing the ancient Jesus leads God's people into the earthly promised kingdom. Um, The first sort of five chapters of Joshua are all about entering the promised land. And so we can look at this book and understand more now of how we can live uh, with God now in his promised kingdom. They're shouting now, they're a little bit later than us. As I said, the first four or five chapters of Joshua about how God's people enter the kingdom. And the way they entered the kingdom, we've seen it. We can learn lessons. It's the same for us now. Uh, They had to follow Joshua. We follow Jesus. They had to believe in what Joshua said, uh, as he's revealed to him by God. Uh, And we saw that Rahab did the same. She trusted in God in faith. God then, we saw, miraculously transfers his people from the kingdom of darkness to the promised land as they crossed over the Jordan. It's the same for us now as it was then. Maybe you're here today and you're not currently trusting in Jesus. It's the same for you. This is what the Christian faith is. Follow Jesus. Believe in the gospel. And God then miraculously saves you from darkness to light. But now uh, we move from the story of how they enter the land to the story of how they conquer the land. Uh, And I think it is easier in the first few chapters to make some equivalents and apply it to us as I've just done then. But we have a slightly different perspective now when it comes to the conquering of the land. It's different because we are not Israel. In the heavenly kingdom where we reign now, if we trust in Christ, we do not need to conquer. Christ has already done that. But 
we do live now between Christ's resurrection and his coming in a time where we are called to fight. We're, we're told we need to fight in order to enter into our inheritance, a little bit as they did then. And what do we need to do in order to be able to conquer? Well, the same in Joshua uh, as it was, as it is now. They had two things, and we're going to see two things now. We're called to submit to God by obeying his word, and we're called to recognise his just judgment and ask him for mercy. I think we're sometimes, or I know I am at least, a bit wary of using fighting metaphors uh, when it talks about the Christian life. And uh, it's right that, as I said, we're not the same as this nation in the Old Testament. That period from Exodus into the incarnation of Jesus is really unique. Uh, In that time, uh, God's plan was that his people had a, a national form and a land. It was a political nation, not just a religious one. Now, us as God's people, the church, we are not a nation today. We're not political. We cannot claim to be the people of God in exactly the same way that Israel was. But, as Paul says, we are in a battle. Not against a people like the Canaanites, but against the world, the flesh and the devil. Ephesians 6, he says this, he says, Put on the full armour of God, so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We we fight now against the world. Paul tells us in another passage, take every thought captive. Instead of attacking cities, our equivalent today is fighting against the the worldly thinking that bombards us every day. It's mentioned in Lanx's prayer. We're surrounded by it, whether it's in school books making no reference to God within the story of creation. Whether it's in, in advertising, in the media, I've just been in London for a few days. And if you've ever been on the tube, you know that there are adverts everywhere for products, for music albums, for shows you must see. Everywhere you're being told by the world, sometimes obviously being told, sometimes subliminally, that in order to be satisfied, in order to be happy, you need to have these things, you need to do these things, you need to be this type of person. And in the media at the moment, we, we constantly hear messages which inform us. And if we don't read them in the right light, we just take them as truth. We're told lots about the cost of living crisis at the moment. We need to be really careful that we can quickly forget the truth in the midst of the panic and the scaremongering. We, we listen to these worldly thoughts and ideas all the time. We forget the words of Jesus. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, about your body, what you'll wear. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns. And yet our Heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? The media is the world's weapon, often, here, as it purports worldly thinking. We need to fight against worldly thinking. We need to fight against the flesh. Our primary battle is with our own flesh, our own sinful nature. Paul in Romans 8 says this. He says, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. In our battle now, we're to put to death the flesh, our sin. It goes on in Romans 8 to say, how do we know if we're God's children? If you're sitting there, how do you know if you're one of God's children? Well, if we're led by the Spirit to go into battle against the sins of your flesh, that's a sign that you're one of God's children. So it's a question, are are you fighting sin actively? If we're not fighting sin, then we're not being led by God and we're not sons and daughters of God. Romans is really clear on that. We're in a battle against our sinful nature. And finally, we're in a battle with the devil. Ephesians 6. 
tells us about putting on the spiritual armour of God in our fight. We fight by putting on gospel truth, putting on the armour of gospel convictions. And if you know Ephesians at all, it's all about the work of Christ in bringing unity amongst his people, unity under Christ. One of the devil's primary weapons he attacks us with as a church now is to try and bring disunity. He wants us to tear each other apart so we don't reflect the wonderful beauty of God's unity to the watching world. So right now, we need to be aware of this. Right now, here at Town Church, the devil will be trying to tear us apart through jealousy, envy, bitterness, anger, selfishness, gossip, and much more. Friends, we need to fight against these weapons of disunity with the gospel of truth. That's the picture we're in. We're not facing the impenetrable walls of Jericho, but this is the battle we face now against the world, the flesh and the devil. And Joshua uh, sort of five to eight now has been given to us to be a model for how we are to fight. We're going to see the second side of it next week. A pattern uh, which was to encourage the Israelites in the centuries that were to follow when they read this account, but is also now a pattern for us today. So what do we learn about how to fight? We look at this story. Firstly, we see we're called to submit to God by obeying his word. And if you flick to chapter 5, page 219, um, we'll see this encounter here. Because it seems Joshua has headed to Jericho to look at the situation before him and his people. They've crossed into the Jordan. It seems like he's on his own. He's standing looking over Jericho. It was a walled city, perhaps uh, about 3,000 soldiers in it, they seem to say. And we see in 6 verse 1, the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Seems humanly a little bit helpless. But in 6 verse 2, we see God say to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. What happened before that? It's a pretty unhelpful divide in the NIV um, between chapter, end chapter 5 and chapter 6. It doesn't need to be there. And in 5.13, uh, we see Joshua was near Jericho. He looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals. The place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. The commander of the Lord then begins to give him a number of instructions. Joshua primarily first meets with the commander of the Lord's army, the commander of his angelic army. This is a little bit like Joshua's burning bush encounter. This figure with the drawn sword is in front of Joshua and Joshua understandably is a bit scared and asks him, who are you fighting for? He doesn't get a straight answer because he's saying, I've not come to take sides, I've come to take charge. And the thing for Joshua to do here, as we see at the end of that encounter, is to submit to God's plan, to bow before God, to take off his sandals. The place we are standing is holy. The message from the commander is not tactical first. Firstly, it's a call to recognise who's really in charge. And I think this is really kind of God. Think of Joshua, leader of his people. Moses has died. He must have felt pretty overwhelmed. He's looking down at Jericho. Nobody going in, nobody going out. Full of armed men. Israel wasn't great at fighting. We see that throughout its history. It's a nomadic people. 
He must have felt overwhelmed and God in his kindness takes the initiative. He comes and speaks and comforts Joshua. Because nothing in this world can withstand God. Jericho, as we're going to see, cannot withstand God's power. And it should be a comfort for us as we fight, if we're trusting Christ. Nothing can withstand the power and authority of God. As we fight against worldly thinking, when we're maybe struggling to convince a colleague of their need to trust in Jesus, when we're maybe getting more and more obsessed by what's going on in the economy and and battling with those natural and some ways thoughts, as we fight our flesh, as we battle sin, temptations in different areas to compromise, to cheat, to lie, as we fight the devil and his lies around God's goodness, as he uh, disseminates disunity, we see here that the Christian life is not too hard if we have God with us. For Joshua, this seemingly insurmountable task would not be impossible with God on his side. How are they going to win this battle? Through submitting to the Lord and listening to his word. You can imagine, Joshua, can't you, looking over Jericho, trying to come up with a battle plan. I've got a few thousand old men who wandered around a while. I've got some people who hold a big box in the air with the art. I don't really know what I'm going to do here. How are they going to win this battle? Through submitting to the Lord and listening to his word. Because the military strategy proposed by the commander of the Lord is nuts. It's probably the main thing we know about Jericho and the fall of Jericho. It's, it's ridiculous. And the reason it's ridiculous is it's done in a way to remind the people for histories to centuries to come. To remind us that contrary to the children's song, Joshua did not fight the battle of Jericho. Joshua did not fight the battle of Jericho. God did. The key as it was of the crossing of the Jordan was the ark was at the centre. It's mentioned 10, 12 times, I think. God was at the centre of the strategy. It wasn't about their strategy. It was all about their obedience. Because people of Israel would have thought, this is silly. Six days marching around the city just with some trumpets. It must have been incredibly eerie on the inside of Jericho, if you think about it. That the nomadic tribe carrying a big box going around the city. If you're a soldier in Jericho, you would have been a bit freaked by it. They'll have heard stories of God. We saw that with Rahab, didn't we? They knew of God's deeds. They knew of what he'd done. And we're just seeing these people slowly follow this big box around and around for days. Six days. Until on day seven, the trumpets blasted, the people shouted, and the walls fell down. And literally, the commentaries say, the language is the walls collapsed from above. Because, again, we're reminded that it's God who won the Battle of Jericho. It's God who knocked down the walls. The whole of the Battle of Jericho was to make sure we knew that God was in charge. And that with their battle, as in our battles, by his strength, as we listen and respond in obedience to his word, we can win through. That's the reason for those bizarre strategies. But after this, we get to verses 20 to 21, and we see that we're also then called to recognise God's just judgment and ask him for mercy. Verse 20 says this, if you read with me. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep and donkeys. Why? Why did it have to happen in this way? This story in the Old Testament is often used to criticise God. I've got a book I've been reading in prep for this series. It's called, it's called, Is God a Moral Monster? That's quite a common question when you come to this kind of story. 
I think firstly, it's really important that we say that if God is God, he owns the world. He made it. He governs it. He rules it. So that so all that he does is right and good. And he owes us nothing. He doesn't even owe us an explanation. He is God. We are not. He has total right over our lives, over our deaths and those of others. We do not have rights. We like to think we live in a world where we have rights. That's worldly thinking. God is God. He can do what he wants when he wants. But in his kindness, he does explain why this happened. Genesis 15, God speaks to Abraham and he tells him, in the fourth generations, your descendants will come back here. That is Jericho, where they were there. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. The Lord, it turns out, was being patient with those living in this land. If you don't read this story in context, you think it just seems like a barbaric military conquest. God was being patient until their sins reached a limit where he would then use his descendants, the descendants of Abraham, those people now led by Joshua, to bring judgment on them. God had been incredibly patient with these people. We're told of their wickedness and evil elsewhere. I'd encourage you to read Leviticus 18. Verse after verse after verse after verse telling us of their gross sexual perversions, their abuse of children. Deuteronomy tells us it's because of their wickedness that the Lord is driving them out before you. God wouldn't destroy the people of Jericho in this way unless they deserved it. This was not injustice, as some of the new atheist authors like Richard Dawkins want to say. It was total justice. Our God is a God of justice and thus judgment. And God often, as he did here, delays his final judgment because he's patient. One commentator, I'm unsure, but he said he's a reluctant judge in some ways. He gives people time to repent, as he did here with those in Jericho. Occasionally, though, we see throughout history, God lets a foretaste of his judgment break through. We have the flood with Noah, destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the plagues in Egypt, the conquest here. We have litters of stories in the Old Testament over thousands of years. But now for us, in what we call the new covenant, after Christ, God exercises judgment mainly through excommunication by putting those who do not repent outside of the church. He withholds his final judgment until the last day. But he's God. He has the right to judge at any time. With the flood, with the plagues, with here in Jericho, this is what happens. But judgment breaks through into the presence. And it's a warning. It's meant to be a warning to us of the coming judgment. Jesus himself says that the flood, an instance of judgment in the Old Testament, teaches us the Lord will come unexpectedly to judge all the nations. And we must prepare for that day. I wonder why... Do we sometimes get a bit embarrassed by the thought of God as judge? Because the truth is that that part of the fact that God is totally good and perfect is that he is perfect in judgment. Would a God who did not care about the difference between right and wrong be someone worthy of our worship? Would a a God who did not put some distinction between um, the, the beasts of history, if we could name them, Hitler, Stalin, and the saints in history, be worthy of praise but a god who wouldn't look on that outrageous tragedy in thailand being if he was indifferent to that he's not worthy of worship if he's indifferent to that he's not worthy of worship the proof that god is a perfect moral being but he's not indifferent to the question of right and wrong is the fact that he's committed to judge the world it is good news that we have a god who judges 
And it is clear then that this reality of coming judgment must affect how we live. How do we live in light of God's judgment to come? How are you living in light of God's judgment to come? Because the Bible then makes clear this judgment was not just deserved for the Canaanites then. It's also deserved for us now. For what the Bible calls sin is not just breaking certain rules, but it's putting ourselves in the place of God as saviour. Putting ourselves in the place of God as Lord and as judge. So we're all guilty of sin because we all do this. And so judgment is coming. I wonder, have you ever built a tower with a child? I do it with Dunks, my son, a while with some blocks and it becomes more and more shaky and eventually collapses every single time. Like those blocks stacking up, our sins are stacking up ready to collapse into judgment. So let's not judge God for his actions here and elsewhere. But remember that he judges us. Does this judgment, the judgment to come, shape how we live? Not necessarily to scare us, although maybe that'd be right. Not to be used as a a rod to scare others into turning to follow Jesus. But to give us a, a right seriousness, a right urgency in how we live and how we speak. Does this reality, does the truth of what is to come, judgment and then glory, affect our thinking more day to day than other things we obsess over? We need to let this affect how we live far more than what the media says, far more than what our bank balances say, far more than what our friends and families say. And we must not mistake his patience for indifference. As we look at the world, he isn't ignoring what is going on. We dare not read Joshua and interrogate God. How dare we do that? How dare we ask God, what have you done? Because apart from God's grace, we all live in Jericho and his judgment will fall on us. We must take this seriously. Because Jesus makes it clear. He makes it clear that if you do not turn, repent from your sins, follow God and accept his forgiveness, then eternity will be spent for you in hell. As the people of Israel entered Jericho and slaughtered all before them, we're told in Revelation 14 that Jesus will come and slaughter all those who have not trusted in him. That God's wrath will pour out. God in the Old Testament is the same in his anger at sin and evil as Jesus is. And look, it is right that with the story of Jericho, what I've just outlined there in Revelation 14, we are horrified. It is horrific. But it is part of the gospel. And in order to understand the good news of the gospel, we must understand the bad. Jesus is coming to destroy his enemies. That is good news. God's judgment is good news. Romans 2, Paul makes clear, he calls God's wrath part of his gospel. The gospel is incoherent without God's just judgment. It includes the news that his wrath is coming and the world will be destroyed and those in it sent to hell. People will rightly suffer justice. Wrongs will finally be righted. And punished in hell. The wrath is coming to us too, friends, unless we turn to Christ. And we're wonderfully reminded here at the end of Joshua 6 there is mercy. Remember Rahab from a few weeks ago? I'd encourage you to listen to that again if you weren't here. It's a wonderful story. We see here as you read down, verse 24. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it. But they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute 
with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men. Joshua had sent a spies to Jericho and she lives among the Israelites to this day. This mercy which Rahab received, this forgiveness is available to us today if we turn to God. God is merciful and he withholds the justice we deserve if we accept his remedy for sin. Repentance and faith in Jesus. Jesus who himself took the punishment we deserve. He forgives us and lets us join Rahab on the Lord's side. Rahab, we're reminded again, was not a moral person. She's described again and again as a prostitute. Christian is not a good person. They've just trusted in God. The people of Jericho, it's important to note, had the same opportunity as Rahab did. She had heard of the Lord. We see that in Joshua 2. Heard of his wonderful acts. She was fearful of them. And she turned to God in faith and asked for his forgiveness and threw herself on his mercy. She realised what was happening and turned to God. The rest of Jericho did not choose to turn to God. And rightly, they were destroyed. God's wrath in the Bible is something which people choose for themselves. Hell is not something initially inflicted on God by people. It is first something which a person chooses by retreating from the light which God shines in his heart. C.S. Lewis famously says this in The Great Divorce. He says this. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is opened. Friends, may I plead with you, implore you, don't face God on judgment day unforgiven. May I encourage you to take up the task, the diligent task of prayer for your friends, the bold speaking to them of this truth. It is a mercy as available as it was for Rahab. I went for a walk a few months ago with a friend from my hockey club. We were speaking about the gospel. He was interested in these things and he was asking me questions and he stopped me about half an hour into our chat. It was pouring down with rain. And he said, Johnny, tell me straight. Do you think I'm going to hell? It's an awkward question, right? Easy to fudge an answer. But by God's grace and the work of his spirit, I hope I was able to be honest and able to say that unless he put his trust in Jesus, the Bible is clear that he would face judgment, which he would rightly deserve for not living with God as his king. It's a rare conversation, that rare one for me. Uh, I often don't have those conversations. I don't think of my friends in a way that they need that kind of conversation sometimes. Jesus, though, looks on those who don't trust on him with compassion, as those who are sheep without a shepherd, harassed and helpless. Will we? Sadly, my friend doesn't yet trust in Jesus. And so the Bible is clear on his fate unless he turns to Christ. Wrath is coming, but we know there is a saviour. Praise God for this. Let that not just be an interesting fact, but something which causes you to praise God more deeply than ever before today, as you've seen the the consequence of not trusting in Christ. Because in Joshua here, we have the picture of the way the greater Joshua will lead us into God's land at the end of human history. With a shout and a sound of trumpets, Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout 
with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Jesus is the greater Joshua. But on that terrible and great day when Jesus returns all those who projected him and his work, who have not trusted in his perfect righteousness as their only hope, will suffer the same fate as those in Jericho. Rich and poor, great and small, young and old will face God's fury when the commander of the Lord's armies, who led the armies of Israel to kill every inhabitant in Jericho, brings complete and final destruction on the city of man. And whilst the hearts of those in Jericho melted in fear, Rahab's melted into faith. She came to believe God was going to give this land to his people. She wanted in on God's grace and his goodness. The judgment of Jericho is horrific. No one was spared. Except for Rahab and her family who put their trust in God. He is so patient with us. He warns us. The Bible says he's delayed his final judgment. And he does this to bring himself the glory he deserves. Verse 24, 27, sorry. The Lord was with Joshua and his fame spread throughout the land. It's God's fame, not Joshua's. We're going to see how important that is next week. God is patient. I wonder if you ever thought about why there are so many prophets in the Bible. For thousands of years warning the people. It's because we don't believe judgment is coming. But it is. Friends, heed the warning today. It's been full on. It's a full on story. It continues next week. Will we take our sins seriously? Will we take the world and its temptations seriously? Will we take the devil seriously? Will we let the truth of the future affect how we live today? Will you submit to God's loving rule, obey his word, accept his forgiveness? For then and only then will we see victory now and ultimately in eternity. I'm going to pray. And then we're going to sing together of our holy God, our separate God, our different God. He is not like us. We've seen that today. He is not like us. And the song calls us to come and behold him, the one and the only, forever a holy God. Come and worship the holy God. Let me pray as the guys come up and then we're going to sing. Father God, we thank you and praise you so much for what we learn as we look back on these stories in the Old Testament which are true. What we learn of your character, of your right hatred of sin, your right anger and wrath at injustice and abuse. And we thank you that you have then miraculously made a way for those who just cling to you to have life which we don't deserve for eternity. Father, we recognise our sin. We recognise our utter need for forgiveness. That we would stand with the people of Jericho if it wasn't for you. But we thank you for that wonderful glimmer of mercy as we look at the story of Rahab. Thank you that salvation is possible for those who trust in you. Not because of anything we do, but all because of what you have done. Father, help us to submit to you, to obey your word. To worship and praise you and to let the truth and light of eternity affect how we live day by day. In your name, amen. Amen. Let's sing.